The Church and Polyamory on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. Now, I don't know about many of you, but uh, this past week, we were confronted, I think, in the Christian world through an article in Christianity Today uh, under this title, Polyamory, Pastor's Next Sexual Frontier. I, I think this is an important topic for us to address, as, particularly as counselors, and more specifically as biblical counselors. And so I want today for us to discuss this issue. In brief, we certainly can't deal with all of the aspects of uh, polyamory and the sexual uh, revolution that is occurring uh, all around us, but I want us to address maybe some basic ideas. In this Christianity Today article, polyamory is defined like this, from the Greek poly, meaning many, and the Latin amor, meaning love. It refers to the practice of or desire for intimate relationships with more than one partner, with the consent of all partners involved. Now, this is an issue uh, for many reasons, but we knew that this kind of thing was coming. When we began to look at the sexual frontier and we began to excuse, even in the Christian world, not just in our culture at large, but in the Christian world, when we begin to allow different sexual preferences that are abominations against the Word of God— uh, to enter, there is no place at which this ceases. This will continue from uh, things like homosexuality or even the acceptance of cohabitation uh, and broaden itself out to many, many other areas. Like I can even see in the future where there will be arguments made. In fact, arguments have already been made that we would allow pedophilia to be uh, a non-criminal offense. Or as we think about sexuality in terms of polyamory, that now we're saying that having multiple sexual partners, as long as it's consensual, is something that's okay. Uh, the Bible is very clear on these, and what I want to flesh out today is I want for us to understand the basis of our counsel and the ways in which we protect the church and think through this in the ways in which we counsel. And one of the reasons I think this is important is because in this same Christianity Today article, and we will link this in the, the show notes, uh, they mention that this couple is broadening themselves out, wanting to engage in polyamory. They go to a Christian counselor who actually advocated for polyamory. And this is what the Christian counselor says. It's only adultery or cheating if someone is kept in the dark. If you are open and honest, this is a God-honoring relationship, and this is good for the kids. It takes a village to raise a child, so a polyamorous relationship actually brings more support and family into your kids' lives, much like the extended families in the past. Can I just tell you really up front that, uh, and very frankly that, that this is neither Christian nor good counsel? Uh, this is an abomination against the Lord. And there are ways in which we should speak this truth in love. And there are several things that I think should guide the way that we counsel. And we in the church have to be firm and clear. Uh, we cannot allow the, the cultural complexities and the cultural emotional flows that are happening all around us to cause a blurred vision about the clarity of Scripture on these types of issues. 
And we have to remember the clarity of Scripture is for the protection of people, not for the detriment of people. The way the culture tries to describe these things now is the church is being uh, limiting for a person to really fulfill themselves, and there's in this emotional draw and pull that we're not being loving. Can I tell you that for us to withhold the truth with grace, speaking it in love, is to not be loving. So it's on these points that the church must remain strong. Now, why? I think for us, it's really important that any time we engage some sort of culturally normal pattern, uh, we need to make sure we're not just trying to address the problem in its situation of the problem, not just to be what I would call problem-focused. Now, certainly polyamory is a problem. It is an issue that we need to address, no question about it. But I think we have to take a step back so that we know how to counsel well here. And the way that I see this is not that we would be problem-focused. What allows us to see that this is a problem to begin with is to ask what the Bible says is a normal pattern for sexual relationship. This is very clear in the Scriptures. We look in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and God, in His kindness and grace, He brought together the man. The Bible says that He brought the woman to the man. He saw that the man was alone. This was not good. The only thing in creation that was not good, he brings the woman to the man. And then the Bible says that the two become one flesh. There is a pattern of monogamy here that's without question that we see this in the beginning in Genesis. And we see this as being uh, the pattern throughout the Scriptures, right? Let's take a place like 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is dealing with or has dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 all kinds of sexual immorality, two particular forms in the church. Paul is dealing with this man who the Bible says is sleeping with his father's wife. He's engaging in an incestuous relationship. And Paul makes very clear that this is outside the norm. This is a problem. And the way in which we know this is a problem is because this uh, this man is not engaging in sexual relationship in the pattern in which God created. God created this relationship of sexuality to be engaged uh, in between a man and a woman in covenantal relationship, committed relationship one with another. And God says that is beautiful. Any other expression of that outside is an abomination against the Lord. And Paul is addressing this in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, he, he addresses this man who the Bible says is sleeping with a temple prostitute. He's engaging in sexual relationship outside of the confines of marriage. And the interesting thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7 is he answers that question, right? I'm writing to you about these things in which you wrote to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage you and tell you what the, what the answer is. And what Paul does is he returns back to God's created design. He says each man is to have his own wife. Each wife is to have her own husband, and they're to engage in sexual relationship. And a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that that's one of the things that keeps us from sexual immorality. So he's praising God's design as a means and a pattern that protects us from this type of sexual relationship. So we have to see if we're Bible-believing Christians, a part of what helps us to have a grid to measure what's good and right, what's evil versus what's good in the sight of God is built upon a primary pattern. There has to be a a lens by which we see through to understand proper, good, godly sexuality and the way to pursue those desires versus what the culture is allowing to say that this is good because it feels good. 
There's a distinction, and we cannot be confused by the complexity and the emotionality of the culture to pursue or to let the standard of God be relaxed in the way in which we approach sexuality. Because there's a lot more at stake than just the simple pattern. That, that's enough in the Scripture, certainly. But let me mention one other thing that I think is important. When we're talking about this issue of polyamory, the gospel is at stake. And you say, well, I'm not sure that I understand this. If we take a step back, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes very clear uh, that there's supposed to be a, a marital relationship between a man and a woman. And in that marital relationship, the way that the, the wife is supposed to submit to her husband, the way that the man is uh, called to love uh, selflessly and sacrificially his wife, and what Paul tells us is this, rela- this, this mystery is great. This relationship is intended to be an example of Christ in the church. Now, this is not uncommon to God. God does this sort of patterning all the time where he helps us to see in temporal life, things here on earth, a pattern of some sort of eternal truth. God did this with the temple in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God set up this temple sacrificial system, and with that system, that was not the way in which sin would be once and for all removed from us forever. This was to be a pattern. This was to be an example, a a visual example of uh, animals being sacrificed, blood being poured out for the sins of Israel. Yet, on Yom Kippur, this was to happen year after year after year, so that the sins could be assuaged in the sight of God. When we get to the New Testament, we see that eternal truth comes to fruition, and God did this for the benefit of his people so that they would recognize, and notice the way that John the Baptist identifies Jesus, John one twenty nine. he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John is doing is John is recognizing through this system that God had created and instituted here on earth to give us a visual picture of what true sacrificial system would look like in the new covenant under Christ. This is exactly, I think, what God has done for our benefit in marriage. He's helped us to to see the relationship between Jesus and the bride, the intimacy that's there, the roles and relationships that should be there. The gospel is at stake when we relax these Uh, sexual desires and sexual preferences. Monogamy is intended to be a portrait of the gospel. For a husband and a wife to engage in sexual relationship in mutual benefit is actually worship to the Lord. Why? Because it's demonstrating exclusivity of the gospel. You know, when I stood on the altar to marry my my wife, Summer, uh, I didn't say to her, you know, babe, I'm going to be devoted to you Monday through Friday, but Saturday and Sunday I might find myself elsewhere. You know, when I made the decision to pursue her and we made covenant commitment to one another, uh, Thomas Watson says it like this, before there can be a great uh, marriage, there must first be a great divorce. And what he means by that is you have to divorce all of the other lovers before you engage in true, sensual, monogamous relationship, covenantal marital relationship. Isn't that akin to the gospel? Jesus actually says as Luke 9:23 if anyone wishes to be my disciple he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. John 14:6 Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through me. There's an exclusivity here. And marriage is intended to be a portrait of that exclusivity of the gospel as we demonstrate the relationship between Jesus and his bride. 
if we begin to relax those sexual preferences, there is no true exclusivity of the gospel. If we say that polyamory is okay, if we say that homosexuality is okay from a biblical perspective, essentially what we're saying is the gospel is pluralistic. The gospel is inclusive. And by inclusive, I don't mean that it's available to all people, that there are multiple ways that we actually can obtain uh, gospel freedom. This portrait of the gospel in marriage is intended to be expressed by this beautiful monogamous relationship. Isn't this the language that God used in the Old Testament of, uh, of his children? the children of Israel, as they were walking through the wilderness and they were, uh, the prophets were speaking to them, consistently God would say to them, stop following after other lovers, because their commitment was to be singular and exclusive to Him, to walk faithful in this covenant. And I would say in the new covenant, it's the same. We are called to walk faithful exclusively through Christ. He is the only way. And the way that that's demonstrated, Jesus having intimate relationship with the bride, us becoming, as the Scripture says, one in spirit with him, that's to be demonstrated through marital, covenantal, sexual relationship. And and for us to relax that makes us pluralistic. It makes us demonstrate a gospel that's that's much more pluralistic than what the Scriptures describe. And and so what we're talking about is these things uh, have something to say about theological ideas, theological realities. And so we, we can't in our counsel, if we intend to be Christian, we can't do as this quote-unquote Christian counselor said. We can't say uh, as a counselor that our own preferences supersede what God has spoken and what God has given us as a temporal reality to express that eternal truth of the gospel in relationship between Jesus and the bride and just say, well, things are okay. It's not really adultery. It's not really uh, cheating uh, if there's mutuality in this relationship. If things are not in the dark, if everybody's okay with this, then it's okay. No, because the reason for which we have marital relationship is to demonstrate and be a portrait of the gospel that Jesus gives. And so for our counsel to be Christian, our counsel must uphold those views of covenantal marital relationship so that it's consistent with Christian truth about the gospel. So our counsel must be driven by the Scriptures. Now, a couple other things, and I'll mention this very quickly so we don't run over too much time. This has something to say about the purity of the church. As far as the way in which we counsel, we must help to maintain the purity of the church, especially as it relates to Christian and gospel truth. Uh, For us to relax this and say that someone who's living in that type of sexual sin is welcomed into the church, then essentially what we're communicating to the rest of the world is that our God is okay with your sexual preferences. Now, I don't mean to say that in terms of hatred. We should love people who are struggling uh, with those sexual preferences, who are sinning in those sexual preferences and those sexual desires, but the way in which we love them is kindly, gently speaking the truth in love, knowing that if they remain in their sin, it's a detriment to them. That's loving. And so if we don't maintain the purity of the church by the way in which we counsel by the wisdom that we provide on issues just like this. And if we allow people to remain in the church in those preferences, uh, 
what we're communicating to the watching world is that God's okay with that attitude. God's okay with those actions. God is okay with marriage defined however however you want. So I think it's important for us to take a step back, not be confused by what's uh, swirling in the culture around us, to anchor ourselves in what I call the theological ideal. In, in this, what helps me to give proper counsel is that I study the Scriptures to say, God, what do you say marriage is for? What's the purpose of marriage? What's the reason for which you created it? How, are, how do you desire it to, to function in the known world? And then everything that's a breach of that we see as the problem. We see as sin, a breach against the commitment uh, of the, the design of God for marital relationship. And that helps me to have a template to know, not just to be problem-focused, but now I see this situation as a problem. I'm not confused by culture, where we allow culture to relax those preferences because of emotional dispositions toward mutuality and fulfillment and so on. We uphold what God's ideal is, and the way in which we counsel is to repair back towards God's ideal, because that's what Christ does. When Christ comes into a life, He restores us and continues that process of restoring us back to the image of God, back into walking in faithfulness to display the glory of God. And when we think about sexuality, when we think about marriage, there's a clear definition and expression throughout the Scriptures in a biblically theological design of the reason for which marriage exists, the exclusivity of marriage in sexual relationship, to display the exclusivity of the beauty of the gospel. And for our counsel to be biblical, for our counsel to be Christian, it must be rooted in and not ever relax what Scripture calls us to for our good design. And you have to remember, the counsel that we're giving is not in hatred. The counsel that we're giving is actually for another's good because we're helping them to see that the consistent way that they're living is actually going to be a detriment to them. It will cause all sorts of death and destruction and decay in their life and that God's way actually leads to life. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, I recognize today that we were not able to cover in a comprehensive nature this issue of polyamory. But, but what I wanted to do is maybe give you an example of uh, how to approach cultural issues like this as we continue to, to stretch further and further away from uh, God's design and God's ideal. And so what I'm trying to do is just help build a framework. Uh, I do hope that was helpful to you. What I want to do is to encourage you, uh, if you have questions, particularly about this or other uh, sexual ideas that are floating around, uh, and you need help on how do we address this with a kind, caring, and compassionate, uh, but also delivering the truth of God's Word as we minister to people, as we try and uphold the purity of the church. We want to hear from you, and I want to be able to try and address that uh, either through uh, blog writing or through uh, here on the Truth and Love podcast. So I encourage you to engage in this, and as we seek to give counsel that's truly Christian, that's truly biblical, uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the benefit of the people that we interact with. So if you want to send us those questions, you can do that to info at biblicalcounseling.com. And if you want more information about resources that we would recommend uh, when we're talking about counseling in these types of sexual uh, situations, you can visit us at biblicalcounseling.com.